Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. The listener's commentary seeks to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life so that you can follow Jesus right in the midst of your everyday life. And before we jump into this session, I wanted to let you know that uh, me and my team are working on putting together a study hub to kind of go along with the commentary so that in addition to the audio, there will be uh, pictures and documents and links to other resources and book recommendations and reflection questions and various things like that, all that can help you understand the text of Scripture more fully that can help bring it to life more completely, that can help you uh, walk with Jesus more completely as you put the text into practice in your life. So I'm working on that. I'm not exactly sure when the release date will be, but if you are interested in that, I would encourage you to swing over to listenerscommentary.com, the website for the commentary, listenerscommentary.com, and just put your name and email address in there and join the emailing list so that you'll be on the list to get the notifications when that resource is available. So hopefully in another month or so, we'll have at least the initial version of that, and then we can keep building it out from there. So if you're interested in that, swing over to listenerscommentary.com, sign up for the mailing list, and we will let you know as soon as it is available. All right, in this recording, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19, and let's set that in context. Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem. In fact, he's been hailed as king on his royal ride into the city, and at the same time, he's been called to silence his disciples for hailing him this way by some of the Pharisees. And some of the Jerusalem leadership is actually seeking now to eliminate him, to get rid of him. It's the week leading up to Passover, so Jerusalem is swelling with pilgrims coming to celebrate the feast. In fact, reports from the time period indicate that the city would double or triple in the number of people there for the feast. And Passover was a Jewish freedom celebration, so nationalistic pride was high, messianic hopes were high, and the Romans knew all of this, and so they typically brought in extra military forces to the, uh, Jerusalem for the feast as well. And Jesus, having arrived in an overtly kingly messianic way and having acted in a prophetic way upon a rival by chasing the money lenders out of the temple, is already under scrutiny, under close watch. And so it's in that context that Luke tells us this. He says, on one of those days, while he was teaching in the temple, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him, and they declared to him, saying, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, and who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, we're in the city of Jerusalem, Passover time, as I just noted, and here in this episode, we're specifically in the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was a massive structure that was begun by Herod the Great. And he was a just a genius builder. And so you have this massive structure where really what they what Herod did was build a massive platform on the top of the mountain, the hill. And so he kind of leveled that out with his massive platform. And the temple itself, the temple proper, sits in the middle of this large structure, this large platform um, that 
that was huge. Uh, like you could fit three or four football fields inside of it. And it, it was surrounded by porches around the outside edges where people could gather and meet and uh, teachers could teach and talk. In fact, the early church in the book of Acts, it says, frequently met in this area. And during this week leading up to Passover, that's where Jesus is. He's in the temple courtyard teaching the people. And that large, uh, giant courtyard was referred to as the court of the Gentiles because it's the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to go inside the temple. It's the very place that Jesus cleared the merchants and the moneylenders out of just a day or two before. And so there's Jesus in the temple teaching the people, and crowds are flocking to him to hear his teaching. And while that's going on, it says, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, in other words, the ruling men of the Jews, possibly even maybe an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body of the Jews, or at least a delegation from the ruling priestly class. And since they're in charge of the temple... They see it as their responsibility to manage and deal with what goes on in the temple. In fact, we'll see the very same question that they asked Jesus here. We'll see them ask that very same question of the apostles in the book of Acts. And so when you're listening to the commentary on the book of Acts or reading the book of Acts, make sure you pay attention to that connection because it's the exact same question. 20 years earlier... 12-year-old Jesus was here in this very same place in the temple, Luke chapter 2, and he was asking questions of the teachers in the temple. Well, now here's Jesus in the temple teaching, and they're coming to him with a question, but their question is really a question of challenge, and Jesus knows where their heart is. So he actually replies to their question about his authority with a question of his own. A question that will actually reveal their duplicity. Here's his question, verse 3. But he replied to them, I will ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? That is, was John the Baptist sent from God, or was he merely acting on his own? This question is actually directly related to their question. It's the question of authority or authorization. God had raised up prophets in the Old Testament who spoke to and against the kingly and priestly authorities in those days. Well, what about today? Was John like that? Was he like an Old Testament prophet that God had raised up and thus he was acting on God's authority? Or was he merely acting on his own accord? Well, they discussed, verse 5, among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, all the people will stone us to death because they're convinced that John was a prophet. And so the, the leaders, this ruling delegation, they realize they're stuck. Either answer has dangerous ramifications, and their thinking and their rationale reveals that they're less interested in the truth and they're more interested in their own political skin. And so here's how they respond, verse 7. So they answered Jesus that they didn't know where it came from. They know they're stuck, so they just plead the fifth. No comment, no answer. We don't know because they don't want to commit because they're really not interested in the truth. And so how does Jesus respond to that? Well, verse 8, Jesus said to them, Neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Since they don't care about the truth, 
What's the point of dialoguing with them? They really only care about their own position, their own power, their own political position. Uh, anyhow, so now that that's clear, Jesus is like, then I don't really feel the need to answer your question. Nevertheless, Jesus does turn to tell a parable to the people. And it's a parable with a not so thinly veiled warning about the leaders. Here's the parable beginning in verse 9. But he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. This parable plays off the well-known imagery of Israel as a vineyard. One of the most well-known places that shows up is Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah 5, Israel is portrayed as a vineyard and God is the owner. And in that context, it ends in judgment. The vineyard only produces worthless grapes and so it's left to itself. Well, this vineyard was well understood to be a picture of God and Israel. So in this parable that Jesus is telling here in Luke chapter 20, the owner plants a vineyard, leases it to vine growers who are to operate it on his behalf and goes on a trip. And everyone would have in mind the picture of the owner representing God, the vineyard representing uh, God's people, the vine growers, those who are in charge. So they would be like the leaders, these very ruling people that just came to ask Jesus this question. And here's what happens. Harvest comes, and here's the way the story plays out. Verse 10. At the harvest time, he, that is the owner of the vineyard, sent a servant to the vine growers so that they would give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And this was standard fare. Uh, he sends a servant. They're under obligation, since he owns the vineyard, to send some of the produce, send some of the wealth of the vineyard, send some of the wine or whatever it is, whatever they had agreed to. But instead of doing that, they actually beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. So the owner of the vineyard decided to try again. Verse 11, he proceeded to send another servant, but they beat him also and treated him shamefully. And so it seems like now, notice we've, we've kind of exaggerated. We've gone further, not just beat him. Now we've also shamed him publicly. We've treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, so he proceeded to send a third ser uh, servant, but this one too, they wounded and they threw out. These are some very bad uh, tenants, right, of the vineyard. They, they're working for the owner of the vineyard, and yet they refuse to fulfill their responsibility and their job. They're beating his servants, shaming his servants. And so at that point, the vineyard owner, owner decides one last approach. Verse 13, now the owner of the vineyard said, what am I to do? I know, I'll, I'll send my, my son, my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. This is a clear allusion to Jesus himself as the son and the heir of the vineyard. And the vine growers are as a clear allusion to the priest and the scribes and the uh, elders of the people. And so the story now is kind of reaching its climactic moment and 
the leaders are listening in, the people are listening in, everyone knows what Jesus is talking about. You can kind of feel the tension in the air if you were sitting there. Here's the way the story unfolds, verse 14. But when the vine growers saw him, when they saw the son of the vineyard owner, they discussed with one another saying, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. In other words, we get rid of him. Then when the vineyard owner dies, boom, the the vineyard is ours and we will have it for ourselves. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and put the vine growers to death and will give the vineyard to others. This is a brutal description of what Jesus understands the Jewish leadership to be doing. They are claiming God's vineyard for themselves rather than seeing themselves as stewards under the authority of God and to operate on his behalf. They're seizing what belongs to God for themselves. That's what Jesus is picturing in this parable. And Jesus even knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that he's on borrowed time and they're looking for a way to kill him. And he knows how this week that he's in right now is going to end. He knows he's going to die. And he knows they're the ones that are going to be ultimately responsible for it. And they're going to find a way to make that happen in concert with the Romans. He knows all of that. And the reason he gives for that is because of their their greed and their self-interest and their self-serving, desiring what belongs to God for themselves. Well, remember, Jesus is telling this parable in the temple, and he's focused on telling it to the people. How do the people respond? Well, this is how they respond. However, when they heard this, they said, may it never happen. This is the people's response. They get the point. They recognize that The vineyard represents them as the Jews and as God's people. Uh, And they recognize that the point of the story is that destruction for the leadership and what does all that mean? And so they get the point. They know Isaiah's use of the imagery. They understand even in Isaiah it was about judgment. They can hear here that there's some sort of judgment that's going to happen. And so they recognize that this is a parable about judgment on the nation. So they, they don't want this to happen. May it never happen. But Jesus, verse 17, looked at them and said, then what is the statement that has been written? He's, he's like, well, here's what scripture says. Scripture actually already tells us this is the way it's going to come down. And he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Then what is the point of this statement that has been written? A stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Again, this is from Psalm 118, verse 22. It's actually right before the very words that the crowd of disciples shouted about Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem in Luke 19. So that psalm is clearly in the air. It was one of the psalms that people often uh, sang as they marched up to Jerusalem for things like Passover and all that. So it's on people's mind. It's in the air. People were just uh, shouting it about Jesus. And so now Jesus takes another piece of that and says, think about what that means. Let's read this psalm a little more closely. The builders that is the leaders, are going to reject the very stone that God will use to build his house or his people on. That's what Psalm 118.22 is saying. And Jesus' Jesus question to the crowd is, just read that closely. Look what's going to happen to the, the son, the heir, the 
the cornerstone, the, the leaders are going to reject him, but he will become the very cornerstone of God's people. Then Jesus goes on and actually uh, alludes to two other Old Testament passages and passages that speak similarly of a stone and judgment. The first is from Isaiah 8, 14, and 15. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That's Isaiah 14, or 8, 14, and 15. And it pictures a stone on the ground and people falling over it, tripping over it. And as they trip, it, it breaks them to pieces. In the context of Isaiah 8, the stone there is a refuge for the faithful remnant. But it's a destructive stumbling stone for unfaithful Israel. And thus, here in this context, it probably has both of those senses. Jesus knows the whole context. He expects his audience, his Jews, to know the whole context. And basically, there's an implicit uh, call to action. Are you going to be the faithful remnant that is going to experience the refuge of the stone in Isaiah 8? Or are you going to be like unfaithful Israel, and thus that stone will will crush you, break you to pieces. So that's the first uh, Old Testament passage that Jesus quotes. The second one in the second half of verse 18 is this, but on whomever it falls, it will crush him. The second is a picture of the stone falling on people and crushing them. And some see an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, 34 and 35. And if it is an allusion to that, it's pretty vague. So it's not 100% clear. But if so, there the stone is falling and crushing the pagan kingdoms, and it becomes a world-filling kingdom, a world-filling stone mountain. So it's possible that Jesus has Daniel too in mind. Either way, both of these lines in, in verse 18 are pictures of judgment. And the point is that although the stone is rejected, it's actually set up as the chief cornerstone so that those who reject it are destroyed as a result. Well, the people don't want that to happen. And this, the, the, the rulers, the leaders recognize Jesus has told this parable about them. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And yet they feared the people for they were aware that he had spoken this parable against them. And so their response is not repentance, not to you know self-examination. Their response is, we got to kill this guy. We got to destroy him because he's challenging our authority right here in the heart of our very authority, the temple itself. Well, just a few reflections as we wrap up this section. The first is this, that this parable reminds us that as is the case with so many of Jesus' parables, they're first and foremost about what is happening in Jesus' own ministry uh, in, in his own day. Now, they speak to us by extension, by implication and application, but first and foremost, they're about what's happening in Jesus' own life and times. And so this parable is not about us. First and foremost, it's about them. It's about Jesus and the, the nation of Israel and especially the Jewish leadership. Does that mean it has no message for us? Well, of course not. One of the things we constantly need to remember when studying the Bible is that the Bible was not written to us, even though it was written 
for us. So we have to learn how to uh, responsibly move from the original message to the original audience and then move from that to, okay, so how does that speak God's word to us today? And so since the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders are really at the heart of the message of this parable, how does it speak to us? Well, one of the lessons it says to us is this, is that religious authority and position, i.e. chief priests and scribes and elders, right? Religious authority and position does not necessarily equal faithfulness to God or his purposes. That is, you could be religious and rebellious. You could be an elder, a deacon, a pastor, and not really be faithful to God. Um, to not have that humble heart that recognizes what God is doing. Think about the, the uh, tenants in the parable who they were full of greed and self-serving and self-interest. They weren't really in it for the honor of the owner of the vineyard. They were in it for themselves, right? And that, again, is one of the lessons of this parable, um, that uh, this greed and self-serving drove those uh, tenets in the parable. How often is that still the case? Power, position, prosperity often lead to self-serving and self-protection rather than seeking the truth, rather than being willing to change, rather than uh, actually honoring God with the position he's entrusted you in in leadership among his people. Uh, and so as we listen to this parable, what we really need to do is a little bit of self-reflective uh, examination and wrestle with, what does this parable say to me in my positions of responsibility on behalf of God? Maybe it's just our family and God has entrusted us with kids and we're responsible for, you know, mentoring and discipling and raising up our kids for his purposes. Are we, are we doing it for our own honor, for looking good, right? Are we doing it for our own comfort, our own ease? Are we doing it in greedy or self-serving ways? Or are we doing it for the honor of the owner of the vineyard? Maybe we've been given a, an important uh, whether volunteer or paid leadership responsibility in the church. And again, we need to look within our own heart and uh, say, are we, are we in any way like those guys in this parable, like the chief priests and the scribes? Are we driven by self-interest? Are we driven by self-serving? Are we driven by greed, whether it's greed for money or power or honor or position? And we want to humble ourselves before Jesus. And we want to make sure that we recognize that any position of influence or authority we have is entrusted to us by the owner of the vineyard. Uh, we have been given a sacred, sacred trust and we exist to honor him.